Hi everyone, welcome to the Mind Blown Zone episode 14. This one is called Do Viruses Exist? Uh, this is going to be such a great <laughs> podcast, uh, tackling one of the uh, biggest, uh, I would say, unproven theories in, well, all of reality. And the way we're going to do this is Brad is going to walk us through uh, all the shade, all the doubt that exists for the argument against viruses. How are you, Brad? I am fantastic. And how about yourself? Oh, yep. Also good. Feeling great today. Uh, really excited about this one. This is going to be a fun one. This is Brad's baby. And I'll just start running with it now. Uh, so, yeah, this is uh, this is a, something that obviously got kicked off with, you know, early in the uh, COVID uh, scare. So we're talking, you know, January, February, March of 2020. And I'll be the first one to admit that I, along with 99.999% of humanity, also believe that viruses existed. Well, why wouldn't we believe that? Mm -hmm. uh, Me too. I had, I had some questions about AIDS and polio. There's, you know, there'd been some stuff circulating in the truther community for years that there was some, some shenanigans going on with those. But you know, who would have ever suspected, you know, a flu virus or a smallpox virus was nonsense. It, certainly not me. Right. Uh, anyway, th so this kind of all got started with uh, a, a podcast that was done by David Icke. And he, he was talking about this doctor who had done a bunch of research and he couldn't find any proof in any of the scientific papers that COVID existed, you know, or SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. So that's what kind of got everything going. Mm -hmm. And from there, we were introduced to Dr. Lanka, who I'll talk about a little bit later in the course. But basically, as soon as I came to my own conclusions and recognitions, I started telling other people. Right? At first, it was, well, there's a lot of questions about this. I'm not so sure. And then it evolved into, oh, yeah, there, there's no proof that viruses exist. And, mm -hmm. you know, for the next year and a half or two years... I was just barraged with, you know, looks of astonishment or derision or absurdity from other people. And, you know, probably more than anything else, uh, it was just people had almost, most people had no curiosity about the subject. They just immediately said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I don't, I'm not interested Same in experience for me. Right. <laughs> I don't care what you have to say. You're, you're, are you a virologist? Are you a doctor? Well, then I don't trust you. And that's pretty much uh, what I got. So I wanted to start this podcast talking about what I call insta-denials, just you know, immediate initial reactions to hearing for the first time that viruses don't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the big one that everybody agrees on, everybody has had this experience that they've either caught or they've passed a virus to a family member, a friend, a coworker, something. Most people have lots of stories like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's because of that idea that's been, this is a good uh, good uh, example of a belief imprinting, right? That, you know, we were five years old and, you know, our brother got a virus and then we got it and, you know, mom or dad explained that this is what happened. So that's a really early belief imprinting situation. But they, when I explain this to people, they, the reason they immediately think I'm crazy is because there's no possible explanation other than a virus for these situations. So right. that's really the quickest one. You know, another one that I got a lot and still get a lot after I maybe explain something for two or three minutes, and I still don't know why I get this one, but a lot of people say, so what are you saying that people don't really get sick? 
And I don't understand. Right. What, you think I'm just imagining it? Yeah. If it's just an imaginary disease? And of course not. No, nobody who doesn't believe in the existence of viruses believe, doesn't believe that people get sick. Of course we get sick. There's no question about it. So I, I just want to get that one off the table. Is it the symptoms, the nausea, the vomiting, the, the stuffed up nose, the headache, whatever, you know, the diarrhea, whatever goes with it, totally real. But it, the, the question is, is it caused by this invisible microorganism called a virus? Mm -hmm. So, of course, I kind of touched on this. The other, the other thing that gets people to insta dismiss me is that you know, they, they say there's no way that all the experts, doctors, virologists, et cetera, could all be lying. And I agree. Right. There is no way they could all be lying, right? Somebody would have said something, they would have gotten around, and we would have corrected our medical system, right? So we, we have to get past that one that they've all been lied to. You know, virtually all of them have been lied to, just as we have been lied to, is the stance that I want to make sure I make clear. Your family doctor isn't lying to you. He or she got taught what all the other family doctors got taught for the last hundred years plus. Right. So we got that one to get through. Now we've got, of course, we've got blind trust and authority aspect of things where immediately they say, well, are you a doctor? Or are you a virologist? And if I'm not, which I'm definitely not, then they don't care what I have to say because they trust the experts. And you know, either their family doctor or one of the personalities on the internet that talks about this. And very few of them want to want to talk about this. I should add that, that, you know, there are many voices out, popular voices out there in the alternative healthcare community that have been, you know, gained a lot of uh, acceptance and popularity these past three years talking about the, their questioning of the COVID narrative and the, the, the jabs and all the rest. And, but they're still of the mindset that viruses exist, but they don't want to talk about it. So an mm -hmm. interesting little side note there. I touched on belief imprinting. Uh, herd mentality is the other thing is that, you know, there's a certain amount of people that say, well, I, you know, I just don't know. And you know, I mean, you're making a lot of good points, but uh, you know, until more people start talking about this and agreeing, I, I'm just going to stick with the popular narrative. And that's really a classic example. Uh, uh, right herd mentality. And it's understandable, you know, it's tribalism. Um, so the next point then was, is this, somebody would have spoken up by now argument, which is a, a reasonable, rational argument. And I, of course, want to just throw out a few people that have spoken out. Now they have been repressed, suppressed, their books are out of print and nobody knows their names, but uh, there was a woman named Ethel Hume who wrote a book called Bechamp or Pasteur back in 1920. And she makes a really good case that whatever Pasteur was working on was just a bunch of nonsense. And she's got, you know, hundreds of doctors that say so that she quotes in her book. And then another woman uh, named Eleanor McBean came along, I think, in mid-1950s. She wrote a book. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, the Poison Needle, it was called. And she's got a whole, you know, just list after list after people questioning. Her, you know, her book's about questioning the efficacy of, of vaccines. But it, within that, they're all questioning this, you know, viral disease thing in that book. So people have spoken out. They're just pushed down. And then there's another guy, a homeopath by the name of Dr. Alonzo Shadman, who, you know, who said that, you know, after all his research and conclusions, he, he's wondering, you know, whether the virus even exists at all. And that's, you know, just an interesting quote from a doctor. And then, of course, we bounce up to Stefan Lanka 
who was a virologist. He now doesn't want that title attached to him, but he was probably the first person in modern times to actually scientifically show that what's going on here is not on the up and up. And he's been doing it for probably 20 years. And mm. uh, I'll talk about his uh, measles experiment a little bit later here, but he's the guy that got this whole thing going uh, in 19 or in 2020 when the, when the COVID thing kicked off. So those are some of the main objections that I get. Can you think of any other, Matt, that come have come along your way? Um, well, I, I find that it's it kind of comes down to like uh, all the things that you've just mentioned uh, all come together in an accusation towards the person suggesting that viruses don't exist, that that person must be stupid. Right, that they must not know anything right. about the scientists, and the only explanation is that they're stupid. Right, right. So or, it's or, just like this instant dismiss. Like you are just an idiot. It's like yeah. no, I know your whole, you know, I know your whole thing better than you. I know both models very, very well, and I'm trying to bring you something new that you don't know. And it's like, well, I won't consider it because you're stupid. Yeah, either that or, or I have some kind of agenda. Like people have accused me that. What's your agenda here exactly? You know, why would you try to? convince somebody of this, you know, there's maybe a little bit of that in the background. And, you know, probably what's, what's dominating the subconscious, you know, of these people is the, is the possible idea that there's some institutional corruption going on right, at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, bo that's bothersome to think that that mm -hmm. could be true. And as we'll yes. go, go along here, I'm going to try to point out that it's not only likely true, it's definitely true. And it's an unfortunate to have to deal with that when you hear it for the first time. But here we are, and I want to get all this good stuff off my chest so that I can point people to this, say, here are my thoughts. Right. Uh, You've been waiting a long time to... Yeah, so uh, I bet you're happy to finally do it, eh? Definitely. Definitely want to just get it, out, get it over with. Uh, you know, another thing I'd mentioned here real quick is, you know, everybody seems to think, well, then if that's institutional corruption, and I mentioned it earlier then other doctors got to be in on it. And it's not the case. As I mentioned before, they're fooled just like the rest of us. They, they have 8 billion things they got to learn in medical school. You know, they probably spend, you know, a couple of weeks in one semester and all, all their job is to memorize mountains and mountains of data that get thrown at them from the textbooks, right? They're not sitting there critically thinking about, well, how did they do this experiment? And are you, are you sure they did this one right, right? It just doesn't cross their mind. They just, they're there to cram information in and spit it back out on their tests so that they can get their degree. So they're not definitely not in on it, uh, but very, very tiny few are in on it. Um, yeah. And I guess the last thing I wanted to mention here was just that, you know, now that you've heard this and the rest of this podcast, hopefully, uh, you're, you're going to probably want to go and do your own research and unfortunately, of course, the mainstream publications, Google searches, journals, right? Any popular search engines, you're going to get the same information back. And unless you understand what's going on, which I hope to try to explain here today, uh, you're going to instantly look at one or two papers. Well, here's a paper that proves that viruses exist. So I'm done. I'm shutting off this idea of the possibility. And right. that's a mistake. It's a big mistake. Uh, you know, hopefully I'll give enough uh, information today to, to suggest as to why it's a mistake and give you some resources here at the end to utilize to go see what I'm talking about. All right. Sounds great. So, 
Next thing is the history of the term virus. So the Latin original definition is a toxic, toxic, noxious, or poisonous substance. So it doesn't say anything about a germ or anything or a microorganism or anything like that. Uh, and then from the period, roughly kind of the Pasteurian period, I call it 1880 to 1925, uh, it became a presumed microbe that's smaller than a bacteria that was unable to be seen with their current technology, their light microscopes. So they couldn't see anything. They just assumed that there was something there because they had already been right. blaming bacteria, blah, 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 blah. So what they effectively called it was a filterable agent or a filterable form of bacteria. Mm -hmm. And that became... Um, I liked so what you said to me just the other day. I'll just reiterate it. You said they'd seen other bacteria. They'd seen infection. They'd seen with microscopes bacteria. And they'd said, okay, small things, germs cause uh, symptoms. But And then they found other people with symptoms, but they couldn't find the ba the bacteria and they said well there must be something so small that we can't see it but we'll see it eventually right and then that was right. it that was their reasoning and, and that's reasonable reasoning right who, who, who can criticize right. that it, it makes sense that, that because they make sense pres presumed the bacteria were causing the problem maybe they're smaller bacteria so no and, real critique so far and in fact really that their their position is the most sensible of all like it gets worse the, the closer we come to this period of time the the more strange and inane and nonsensical it gets. It, you know, at least these guys, you know, had a test tube or a Petri dish or whatever with fluid and unknown contents. They had something, mm. right? This is the thing. In here somewhere is this deadly virus. That was their assumption. Um, so, you know, the, the concept that we that we later would come to, and I wanted to, you know, speak about Royal Rife. I may bump ahead here because Royal Rife is an amazing, you know, super genius. And I love all the work that he did. He invented all these amazing, what, what we now call dark field microscopes. I mean, the guy was like ahead of his time by a hundred years. And I want to just make this clear is that he was using the definition at the, at the time. People say, well, Royal Rife saw him in his dark field. He saw something else that we'll talk about in another podcast called Microzyma Somatid. Uh, we don't have time to do that one today, but he, he called the things he saw viruses because that's what people called these small little things. That was what they thought they were. So I wanted to make that clear because I'm a big fan of Rife. It's a shame what happened to him and what they did to him. Um, but I don't want to, I wanted to get that out there. Uh, so I think I covered most of this. Yeah, micro microorganisms were what they would call them sometimes, but they, this was the virus, smaller than the bacteria. Um, okay, uh, blah, blah, blah. So they also disregarded this pleomorphism idea, which has there's been proof of it for over 150 years now. But for whatever reason, the establishment medical institutions won't accept it as a possibility. And all that means is that there are these changing forms, these bacteria come from these small little tiny things and they morph into the different rods and staffs and round things and spherical things that they get different names. But some, a lot of these guys, including Rife saw that this was happening. So I don't, I don't want to diverge off into that. Uh, do you think I need to make any, any clarifying statements on that matter? Can I keep rolling? No, I think we're fine here. We're kind of at like Small things, identified, correlation, symptoms, that, that's where the science is kind of at at this point. Got it. Perfect. So I, I think it's in 
you know, shortly thereafter, at some point, it's not clear, but it, the definition of virus is then changed again. And the, this is the modern day definition, which is that a virus is an infectious microbe consisting of a segment of nucleic acid, which is either DNA or RNA, surrounded by a protein coat. That's the the new modern definition of a virus. Right. <laughs> and just to be clear, if you scratch some dead skin off your arm, you're going to find a lot of uh, segments of nucleic acid surrounded by a protein coat. Just to be clear. <laughs> We're all made of DNA and RNA, right? Mm -hmm. and You'd be hard-pressed not to find such uh, entities <laughs> in any symbol. On the top of your windowsills that you haven't dusted in a while, uh, you can find it just about everywhere. There's life. Uh, so moving on now, I want to jump into Louis Pasteur only because I've read a great deal about him. And, you know, I, I, this is going to be a quick coverage of him, but, you know, he was described by his, you know, top professor as a mediocre chemist at best. They never received any education or training in medicine or biology of any sort. And he got into the mix when it became profitable to, to deal with all the French winemakers and fermentation, fermentation and this sort of thing that was going on in France when he, you know, came, came of age. Uh, he was just, con I mean, he was just wrong about everything. I wish I could say, yeah, he did figure out some important things and here's, here are his contributions to medicine and science. But unfortunately he didn't. He actually stole all the ideas that he's credited for today from his contemporary, a man by the name of Antoine Béchamp. And Béchamp was just such a quiet, humble, he was like a real scientist. He didn't want any publicity. He didn't want any celebrity. And he just kind of uh, let Brad Stewart do it. Just to be clear, who, how, how does uh, the scientific community regard Pasteur now? Is he regarded as some father of something or inventor of something? Well, yeah. I mean, he's in, he's in virtually every book about uh, history that has anything to do with science. Uh, there are, I think, mm -hmm. 37, uh, 37 infectious disease institutes around the world called the Pasteur Institute. And he okay, is right. So he's a modern hero. Infectious disease, modern hero, like father of science in that field. He's the man. No one, no one tops him. And of course, okay. we all drink pasteurized milk today because of his work. They think that the bacteria in the milk can make you sick. Right, right, right. Okay. Oh, also <laughs> not, not true, but that's Pasteur for you. Uh, all right, so let's see. And and you don't have to take my word for it. And actually, a university professor did his best to not make Pasteur look bad, but he actually wrote a book based on the released, that shouldn't have been released, but the grandson of Pasteur released his private diaries against Pasteur's dying wishes. And in those diaries... He admits to unethical, immoral practices when, you know, dealing with squirting innocent people with his crazy uh, nostrums. And the most famous uh, event of his life was he set up this big press event where he was going to save some farmer's sheep herd from anthrax. And, you know, he set it up months and months in advance and he was he worked on his anthrax vaccine, whatever the heck it was, it was just basically rabbit blood. And as, it, as he approached the date deadline, when all the press was going to show up, that he's going to go inoculate all these sheep, he knew he couldn't take his concoction to this event because it was killing over half the sheep that he injected it with. So what does he do? He's some veterinarian you know, some, some, from some other part of France that also created his own version of a vaccine, and it wasn't killing as many sheep as his was. So he admits he used the veterinarian's concoction, not his own. 
Okay. So I, I'm sorry that I'm not clear on this Pasteur guy, but he, he must have, it's by the sounds of things you're saying he was some sort of inventor of some sort of vaccine or something. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. That, well, I mean, he's, most famous, he's most famous for his rabies vaccine, right? But just still used today. Right, right, right. So in the early 1900s, this Pasteur guy supposedly invented some vaccine and he's regarded as like, oh, he's this guy who could stop viruses, right? And you're, right. you're pointing out the, the falsehoods in his theories and the mistakes that he's made, right? Right. They're all mistakes. I mean, there's no, there's no anthrax. There's no, the thing they call anthrax bacteria doesn't make people sick. It's the output or the waste product of those bacteria doing their work whatever, really what, what they were probably doing. And I can only speculate here, but those bacteria were probably eating the, uh, arsenic that the sheep were dipped in to, to keep off the pests. And this is probably okay. what happened. Can't prove it. Not part of this talk, but this is, this is what his, his most famous thing at, in his life was this anthrax sheep vaccination press event. This is where he gained okay. worldwide fame. And, but, you know, today, most people think of him as the inventor of the rabies vaccine, which is also, you know, a wasteful, okay. deadly nostrum. So, so basically in the historical thing here where you're, we've introduced, like, there's this idea of vaccines, right? Like it's somehow into the Pasteur guys brought in vaccines and now the public believes in vaccinating animals against viruses, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there's somebody, Edward Jenner was the guy who really got made it famous, but that, again, that's not part of this talk. I was just... Pasteur is the father of the germ theory of disease is where I'm going with all this. Okay. Right. He, okay. He's the, he's the guy that everybody points to and says, here's the one who figured it out for us. Right. And, and certainly and at this point, there is no observation of viruses, right? Not, not even no. claimed at that point that there's a clear observation, right? Right. And I, I was going to, I was going to dive right into that, uh, section here in a moment. Uh, so, right. So. What we, what we have now in this pre-1900 period and a little bit past 1900 is we have more claims now that Pasteur's work has gotten out and about. We have this tobacco mosaic virus story, which is total nonsense. And if you go and look at it, you could see all they're doing is exactly what this filtrate idea. They were just taking these sick plants and they were filtering out the bacteria and everything else. And then they got this, you know, soup of gunk afterwards. And then they took that soup of gunk and they poured it on some other plants and those plants died. And that's the proof of tobacco mosaic, which a lot of papers still point to as a reference, like modern day papers point to that one. Mm -hmm. and there was 1898 cattle foot, foot and mouth virus. So this is all starting to pick up steam. And I think it's important to point out here uh, is that this whole period right, between 1880 and 1940, we, we blame a number of, you know, massive deaths or, you know, pandemics, if you will, on these viruses and nobody could right, see right, it. Right. Smallpox, right. Spanish flu, polio, <laughs> rabies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, right? Right. All these things are blamed on viruses, but no one's ever seen one. So really important, right. to, I think, to point out. Right, right, right. So it's basically in the public consciousness now that they're like, oh, yeah, all, all these diseases and stuff and these symptoms that we're observing, people are like, oh, yeah, they're all caused by these uh, microscopic things. We we never actually seen them. But if you uh, create this vaccine that you don't know anything about and then uh, 
put it put it into that, then then it stops the, the the supposed virus that we haven't proven to exist, right? That 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 theory has taken hold in public consciousness at, at this completely, point, right? Completely, okay. a tremendous amount of fear can be generated based on an assumption, <laughs> right? A presumption. Right. So that's right. what, you know, it's not until the 1930s that the electron microscope is even invented. So it's at, at this right. point okay. that a, a few people have seen, you know, little creepy crawly things that you, no one's ever seen before, or so they claim, right? And it's really not until after World War II where these things get the electron microscope start to show up, you know, at universities and research facilities where people can start looking for this uh, alleged virus that's now killed hundreds of millions of people by now. Well, I so, think that's really important because... Uh, People say, oh, oh, no, I believe in viruses because there's the uh, the proof with the, the, the electron microscope, right? right? But people fully believed in it before that proof anyway. So the people who believe now would have believed before without the proof. So it's not because of the proof. It's just it's really just uh, what the, the, the scientific community is saying it. They're, and you're, you're afraid of the viruses and they say it and it's just believed, right? Right. And it's it's not right to say that the electron microscope provided proof all the electron right. microscope provided was they could take pictures of things smaller things. than a bacteria right? yeah, they right. could mag magnify you know 100 times further and see things in the mixture of gunk that were smaller than bacteria say hey look here's some little particles and things that we couldn't see until some we had this yeah right we've observed small We've observed, you know, we theorized that there were smaller things than viruses, and here they are. And we take this uh, tissue that is, you know, of a uh, an animal or a person with some sort of symptoms, and we observe these small things in the tissue, right? So there, there you go. It's confirmed. We've uh, confirmed fully that there's contagious viruses that move from one person to another and transfer this illness by the, by the fact that we've observed small things that we couldn't observed before that's right. the right way to say it yep small things and and it should also be noted since we're talking about this that the process of making a slide for an electron microscope requires that you destroy and kill the sample so if there was anything living in it it's dead after you stain it with the heavy metals and fry it with the electron microscope light so they're never looking at uh, a process like or they're not looking at anything moving right. around or something you know you don't see the little squiggly attacking another little squiggly. None of that. Yeah, you can't see it. Yeah, they're not observing. And they're not observing this particle in one entity that's infected, moving out of that entity into another entity, and then infecting that. That is not observed. It's just static, yeah. small things that are associated, correlated with diseased tissue. Right. They're just looking at a. It's they're looking at death basically. They're looking at the end result of taking some fluid or tissue from a person who was sick. Yeah, it's right. It, so hopefully, you know, at this point, we're about, you know, halfway through or so, hopefully your people are starting to see some, you know, there's some questionable stuff and I haven't even really gotten to the good stuff yet, but this is, you know, this takes us to 1940 or so, but let me back up a little bit and talk about Koch's postulates, or I think correctly said Cox postulates, K-O-C-H. And these were formulated by the, you know, uh, Pasteur's contemporary in Germany, Robert Koch, or Koch, and I really want to say it. And and people hear this, you know, oh, that's some some deep scientific stuff. No, it's not. It's it's basic common sense. And I'm gonna just really simply say what what Koch's Koch's postulates are. He says, 
identify the thing you think is causing the disease in the person who's sick, you know, to remove that thing from the person and then isolate it, separate it, and purify it from all other things, right? And then take that purified sample that you got from the sick person and introduce it to the healthy mm -hmm. person. Right. right. Either make them smell it or drink it or, you know, whatever they got to do to introduce it and then observe that person getting sick and then right. retake the sample from the newly sick person and isolate and purify the sample again. So you get that, the thing that's causing the disease. Right. right. I mean, it's pretty, pretty logical. There's nothing complicated about that at all. Yeah. Uh, Can I even restate it in even simpler terms? Go for it. So you would... Go get your sample. You would identify the virus. You would you would pluck it out with whatever tool you go. You'd pluck out, you know, hundreds or thousands of these things, and you'd you'd say, okay, here here they are in a little receptacle. Okay, here they are. Then we'll go put those in another living entity, an animal or a hum human, and let's see if it develops the same symptoms. Right? That that's simple. Like there, that's, that's the it. challenge. And has that been done? No, never. Why not? Oh. Can't do it. We can't do it. You know, we're not going to talk about bacteria today, but they can't do it with with the alleged cooties virus, nor can they do it with bacteria. And believe me, they tried and tried and tried for at least fifty years. Mm -hmm. So today, when you when a virologist or immunologist or bacteriologist or microbiologist or whatever talks about these, these are our modern scholars have been taught to say that. Cox postulates are archaic, outdated, irrelevant. Yeah. And and what for are the few times that I've heard to say, right? For the few times that I've heard them pressed on it, they just say because they are, because there have been newer postulates. Rivers postulates is a, is one example they'll go to, which is uh similar to Cox postulates, but it's a little little less stringent. But even even Rivers postulates, they can't, they don't even try. They nobody's tried to prove Rivers or Cox postulates since the early 1950s. All right, then. Uh, to my knowledge, right? If, the, if it's out there, we'd all love to see it, but nope, they're outdated. So uh, to me, this is one of the most important aspects to talk about, is that you would think somewhere along the way, even if it was with rabbits or mice or whatever, that they they would have, somebody would have been able to successfully take this, you know, microorganism, whatever you want to call it, from the sick thing, give it to the you know the healthy thing, and then the healthy thing gets the same disease as the sick thing. So I would say we arrived at an important point here uh, for that you know it's a practical thing that people can do would be to go to your doctor or you know some some medical professional with whom you have acquaintance and literally ask them, hey, can you tell me about a time where they actually uh, isolated like the actual virus and kind of got it and then put it in another animal or human and see and check if they develop the virus. Can you, do you, are you aware of that ever happening? Okay. Watch them struggle. All right. That's a, that's a very well, simple yeah. question. See what happens. One of the problems with that tack now is that there are thousands upon thousands of studies that have been done. Really it's vivisection. It's, you know, torture where people take various concoctions of who knows what and that are in these syringes and they squirt this stuff into mice and guinea pigs and rats and so forth. And the, the researchers find that, you know, some of these 
mice got all sweaty and, the, and these mice lost their appetite and these mice didn't sleep well, right? They, so they have these kind of corollary studies where they think they're proving something. And this is this kind of obfuscates the reality of things, which is that you need to give the, the mouse needs to get the same disease as the other mice. They only have the same thing. And it's, you know, it's, what is it? Are they coughing, sneezing, wheezing, diarrhea, whatever it is. So there's that aspect of this that really hides the truth. The other aspect, as I like to say, is is that I my argu argument is I can take a, some box of Cheerios and or mix it up with some Coca-Cola and maybe some cheese Whiz and throw it in a blender, mix it all up, put it in a syringe, and squirt it into you. And I guarantee you're going to have a reaction. <laughs> right. 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 Your body is not going to be happy that this because your body is runs perfectly. It doesn't want there's nothing belongs in your sterile environment of your body or your bloodstream. So your body is going to react when you squirt foreign stuff into it. And right. if that, and especially not the diseased tissue of another living being, right? Oh boy. Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother dark rabbit hole to go down. But yeah, that's, this is, this is why those experiments don't hold any water. If you have to inject something to prove something, then you've lost the plot. They should be able to aerosolize their whatever their concoctions are, or put it in the water or the food or something. Mm -hmm, when, mm -hmm. when they have right, to right, inject right. enormous amounts of toxic fluid into the into these teeny tiny little helpless animals, it, there's there's no that doesn't prove anything. It's just absurd to think that it right. does. It doesn't. They should be so, able to isolate the exact things that they say are the viruses with nothing else whatsoever. Put them on a tabletop, and then have you put your hand on it. Or like, and then rub your eyes or something like that, or, you know, just go down to the tabletop and, you know, smell it in and you get the virus. Right. We call this normal transmission vectors. So it's right. got to, you've got to show that it transmits the way we're told, right? Through the air, through the water, through the food, through the surfaces. Right. There's a million ways right. they could do it, but, but they never do. It's always this injection problem. Yeah. We and injected it with like, like rotting tissue. In, into right. a person it was like you're injecting me with rotten tissue oh my god there's rotten tissue in me <laughs> right. there's a, there's a there's a really interesting argument out there and, and i can't articulate it well but that you know, it suggests that your body violently reacts to foreign dna when it gets into it because it doesn't recognize it so it really feels under attack and right in in all these every vaccination that's ever been concocted it's loaded with foreign dna and i'll talk about that in a second what's what's in these uh viral culturing mixes so okay. hopefully that makes a lot of sense. I got a quick section here again on Royal Rife and Gaston Naissons. Both of these men, just really briefly, uh, both invented some fantastic technology and we, we call it dark field mic microscopy today. And what they, what they were able to do with their inventions is see living tissue, living bacteria, living whatever, smaller than bacteria, things, you know, swimming about in fluids. They could look at it for hours and hours and days. But for some reason, the American Medical Association and the Canadian Medical Association and all of these top-level establishments decided to ruin both of these guys' careers and really their lives and attack them for trying to help people. You know, in, in Rife's case and Mason's case, they were trying, they were helping people that had cancer diagnoses, and both of them helped a lot of people. But for whatever reason, the establishment didn't like what they were doing, so. Had these men's lives not been destroyed, we would have known what we're, everybody is starting to discover today about these viruses of bacteria. 
keeping their technology away and only using the electron microscope has allowed this deception to go on for darn near 100 years now. Okay, makes sense? Yep. All right, so I'm going to bounce right here to eight just because uh, I did seven already. So the uh, one of the most amazing and important things to understand, and I can't stress this enough, is that nobody has ever been able to find a virus in the fluids or tissues of a sick person. Can't find it. Can't stress that enough. They claim that there's not enough virus in the sample for them to be able to find it. In other words, just take that, you know, whatever, mucus or urine or blood or whatever from the sick person and look at it under a microscope and find a virus in there. Can't do it. They've never been able to do it. So fact, they don't even even try anyway um, go ahead so i i mean i mean, imagine someone listening at this point would say short what sh what short surely they have right sure surely surely they that's have, right right that's right that's right and the answer is nope they can't do it they've never been able to do it and this is why from you know this post-world war ii era leading into the early 1950s Virology was almost dead. There, I mean, there were there was no such thing as a virologist, and there was nothing to be to study because they couldn't find them. They couldn't find anything. So they needed somebody to rescue this field, and a guy came along by the name of John Enders. I believe he's got well, a Nobel Prize again. If if you're saying okay, they can't find them, but you, if someone goes to Google and they look up virus and they they see a picture, right? And it's like okay, there, there's a virus, right? Well, where where were those pictures taken, if not I'm getting, in the yeah. tissues of a sick person? I'm getting to that. That's the next. Okay, you're getting to that. Modern virology section. Uh, okay. You know, a quick a quick side note is that there are, if you Google this, you'll find funny little claims that, you know, Arctic researchers found ancient viruses in ice core samples from 20,000 years ago, or they found it in permafrost that, you know, unfroze from 50,000 years ago. Well, apparently, they can they claim they can find viruses in this, but they can never find influenza or polio or HIV or SARS-CoV-2. They can't find it anywhere. Mm -hmm. but, and I'll just give you this as a side note too. So Tom Cowan, Dr. Tom Cowan and, and, and Andrew Kaufman were on a call. They talk about this frequently with one of the lead virologists in uh, Wuhan. And it was a kind of an open Q&A. And Dr. Kaufman asked, you know, well, since it's so hard for you guys to find these viruses in a, you know in the samples of uh, you know a sick person, well, what if you took ten people's you know fluids and threw them into a vat? And could you find one then? And the guy said no. The virologist said no. He said, "How about a hundred people's fluid samples? Mm -hmm. No. How about a thousand? No. How about ten thousand? And then the guy stopped answering the question because he knew he saw how ridiculous it was getting. But this is what uh, they've been okay. taught. Go ahead. And that's just funny. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say something. So this is the story. Either there's not enough there to find or they're too hard to find. So along comes this guy named John Enders. And like I said, he's he's famous for working with Jonas Salk, who, you know, is an atheistic uh, eugenicist that invents the, pol the you know, the, the uh, polio vaccine. And that's what he's famous for. And you know, he wrote another book about how only people with high IQs should be able to survive and they should look for ways to eliminate low IQ to better the species. So there's a little little taste of Jonas. He sounds like a great guy. Great I'm being guy. sarcastic, great just guy. in case anyone didn't pick that up. Indeed you are. So anyway, Ender's working with this guy that worked on the polio virus. 
And in the process, he comes up with this methodology, and today we call it viral culturing. And right. what he does is, is he takes, I'm just going to explain it really simple. People don't, you don't need to understand this to any depth. He takes, for whatever reason, they use green monkey kidney cells, which is just strange on its face when you first hear it, as this, as this sample that the, the bacteria or the viruses can attack. They take the sample, they put in something known as FBS or a fetal bovine serum, which is basically the amniotic fluid that they suck out of uh, a calf sack after the mother's been slaughtered. And they use this to feed that monkey kidney tissue. And then they pour on what's known as an antibiotics. And it's uh, there's a bunch of different ones they choose. Ironically, they're all poisonous to kidney tissue, epitoxic, which is in and of itself a little bit even more curious. Now, they claim that the reason that they put the antibiotics onto the monkey kidney cells is to kill any potential bacteria that are there. So, so to sterilize them, in other words. That's their excuse for doing this. And then after all this is done, this is the viral culture cooking, then they take the fluids or tissue fluids from a sick person. And in John Ender's case, he took a little boy who had measles and he had some of his fluids. I think it was urine. And he pours this into the mix, this viral culture we got going. And they wait a few days and the tissue of the kidney cells starts to degrade, deteriorate, fall apart. And they, they claim now cytopathic effect, which just, it just means the, you know, the death and degradation of the cell. And they claim that there are, were viruses in the boy's urine who had measles and that's what did it. That is viral culturing, and you don't need to understand much more other than what I'm going to explain next. Any questions about that, Matt? Oh, only that uh, could I please even restate it with more humor and (laughs) shade cast upon it. Okay, so, you know, this was, I don't know whether he received the Nobel Prize for this one or he received it for something very similar, but there were supposedly some people who had measles. I, I've read the entire paper for this. I'm not naive and just saying stuff. I read the entire paper word for word. There are some people that they got like rashes and stuff. They're like, these people have measles. Okay, so so let's let's test it and see if we can get the virus, find, find the virus, right? They're supposing there's a virus, okay? So they get some of the tissue, right, from these these people. They take it from their rectum, from their, from their saliva, and they're like, okay, so this probably has the virus, yeah? And then they take that virus and they put it in the concoction that Rav was talking about, right? A concoction of uh, antibiotics. Uh, they, they had a few different samples, one with like monkey kidney cells, one with human cells, and, uh, you know, a few different few different options, right? And this like, uh, this like culture that they can supposedly, you know, grow the virus, right? So they, they, put, it, they put it all together, right? Cells, the bacteria, and the, the supposed diseased tissue, right? And then they let it rot for days and, you know, mix in with the, the, the bacteria, which is the anti, antibiotic, I'm sorry, which obviously is killing everything there. And then after a while, they look at it and they, they, they look at it under a microscope and they go, look, there are circles with lines coming out. And they, they, they get a pencil and they draw it and they're like, yeah, small un- unidentified things. So, yep, well, that just proves that there's a virus. Now, here's another part. They did, yeah, the reason they used the kidney cells, well, it's because they also did it with human cells, as I said, but they didn't observe anything, right? So they're just like, 
don't know. It works with the kidney cells. You can see small things with squiggles coming out of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, that confirms our viruses. So anyway, uh, here's a Nobel Prize. And that is literally it. Okay. And every single uh, belief in viruses just resting on that as a foundation. And all you have to do is go look at the paper and read it for yourself and go, what? What is it? Huh? Right. What? They just right. drew a little he, sketch and said, that's a virus? Wow. Right. Right. He, he didn't win the Nobel Prize for that. He wrote one for something else that I think had to do with polio. But it, it, it but right. this, this right. paper it lasted. To this day, this still stands as the basic paper for this type of uh, proving yep. viruses exist. Now, what's also important in this 1954 paper is that uh, what we criticize the viro virologist of today for not doing, John Enders actually did. He ran a control experiment where he did not, you know, he, he changed the parameters to see if he could get the same results or if the results would be different. And in his control experiment, he got the same results as the main experiment. He basically proved that there could have been something else that was causing the cytopathic effect. He didn't go any further with it, try to narrow it down. That happens in 2021 when Dr. Stefan Lanka does this viral culturing, culturing experiment and he leaves out the virus completely, the, the, the fluids of a sick person, but runs through their, their procedure uh, you know, in the same way. Other than that, right, he, gets right, the right. he gets the same results. He gets cytopathic right. effect. And so today you'll hear most of them just claim that, you know, it's, it's almost certainly the poisonous antibiotics, which antibiotic means against life. And so when you pour a poison, no less a kidney poison onto kidney tissue, it's going to kill it. And right. that's in, in short, this is what's happening. And you can, this is another problem. If you go and try to you know, go on a PubMed or look for papers, you're going to find all these papers that that use this exact method that, and you'll see in their footnotes, they refer to the Ender's viral culturing technique and they all claim they got viruses and not one mm. of them runs a control experiment. And a control experiment right. is again, is the, what you described. That's let's, let's test this to make sure exactly sure that it's this, you know, what, what would happen if we used the urine from a boy who didn't have measles? Would we get the same results? That'd be a control experiment. And of course mm. you would get the same results. <laughs> what would happen if we put no urine into it? What, you know, fluid from a sick person. That'd be another control experiment. So they don't mm -hmm. run any of those, even though Enders did. And it's in his paper. So that's head scratching. Right. So, so the, what you can conclude from this is that, you know, medicine, medical establishment is doing what they always do, which is just observing effects and then just going, uh, yeah, so therefore the cause is exactly what we uh, theorized a long time ago. But what, what they're observing is they just create death, right? They observe, they, they kill these cells and then they observe rotting, dying cells. And there are things there and they say, see, sickness and, and things that we don't identify. So virus, there you go. Right. And that's all that's that's happening. The, that's the answer to your question from 15, 20 minutes ago. Well, what happens when I Google it and get a picture of a virus, right? Yep. They take pictures of the little dots and squiggly marks that are the result of this culturing process. And as the guys are saying today, they use the uh, very scientific point and declare method for proof, right? <laughs> they say, declare. look, put a little red arrow and point to a couple of little uh, dots and say, Here, there they are, there's the viruses, without any proof at all. Nobody then purifies those viruses and or those dots and you know, then feeds them to a, you know, a healthy subject and gives the he healthy subject the same disease. That part never happens. 
So good times. So that's a, those are all your pictures on the internet. Most, mm -hmm. by the way, most of the pictures are are actually just that. They're images. They're CGI. So they're drawings. You know, it's pretty mm -hmm. rare when they show an actual electron microscope photograph. Anyway, so around 2000, I don't know, a few years before or after, this, uh, you know, the genetics thing starts getting really popular and the Sanger sequencing starts to take hold. And uh, it, people may call it genetic sequencing, metagenomic sequencing, Sanger sequencing. Then the name doesn't matter. They're all doing the same exact thing. And I want to make this really clear. So for everybody else in the world who's studying whatever you want to name, tadpoles, corn, humans, flies, doesn't matter, bacteria, they all do the same thing. They take a fully intact genetic sequence of the thing they're studying. I make this clear. So it's already fully intact and they take it and then they slice it up and do and study it and do experiments. What happens if we configure this gene to connect to that gene? And you know what I mean? The, that's, that's what they're doing. Taking the fully complete thing because we can go find a fly or a frog or a piece of corn. There's no question that those things exist. Their work, they start with a fully intact sequence of that organism's DNA, and then they cut it up and study it. That's what sequencing means in the genetics world. Everybody else is doing that except for our friends, the vi virologists. So their problem okay. is, of course, that they can't find a fully intact genetic sequence for a virus ever. They can never find it. They right. gave up looking a long time ago. Nobody goes looking for it. So what they do is they take the, you know, bronchial lavage fluids of a sick person or the urine or the blood or whatever, and then they pour it into their machinery and they take and they find millions and billions of little broken teeny strands of RNA, basically dead cells, what we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, like the, you know, skin on your arm, just little fragments of what once was part of a full cell. And they take these and then they... And they assemble them into what they believe a virus is. They don't have a virus sample to start with, but they have programmed into their software. This is what we say a measles virus looks like, or a SARS-CoV-1, or a SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> what they do. And then they tell the machine, why out of all these billions of strands of RNA, assemble something uh, that look, <laughs> looks like this. Right? <laughs> Sorry, that's hilarious. This is the new way viruses exist. That's right. Oh, dear. That's exactly how it works. And again, they're pressed. Well, how come you guys never find a fully intact virus? And all of that, right? All that fluid. You can't find one sample of a fully intact virus? Nope. Can't find it. And you don't have any questions about that? Uh, no. <laughs> we, we were taught that this is the way you do it. So this is the way we do it. As hard as it is oh, to prove, folks, this is what's happening. This is exactly what's happening out there. And it's, you know, you scratch your head. It's astonishing. Um, so that this is a modern way to prove a virus is either the monkey kidney cell killing the monkey kidney cells or assembling a bunch of, uh, RNA that we don't know the provenance of, right? We don't know where it came from. Could it have possibly come from the human that you took the sample out of? Well, yes, could because RNA and DNA, it's all the same for all of life, right? So you can't tell the difference between a little teeny tiny chunk of human RNA and a little teeny tiny chunk of carrot RNA, right? If it's just a little teeny piece, it's all the same. It's only how it gets assembled and, you know, how the amino acids, or sorry, the, uh, not the amino acids, the, the G TGCA uh, connect together, that that's how what makes a piece of corn versus a human. Right. So, so all books are the same. 
Right. So they could very well be assembling just little pieces of dead human cells, RNA. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what we say they're doing. That's all they're doing. And just to give a, a reasonable metaphor here, imagine a library and you go, go in there and you take the whole libraries, all the books off their shelves, and you shred them all, right, down into little teeny tiny fragments. And then you task me with going in there and, uh, you know, reassembling Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, for example. But in uh, even truth, if it wasn't there in the first place, right? That's right. Even if that book wasn't there, I can go in there and get all the letters and words that make up Romeo and Juliet from the, all the books in the library. It, so it was there. Right. Hey, that's it. That's exactly right. This is what that's they're said. Okay. That's what they're doing. All right. So what do we got next here? Ah, the controversy. So a lot, if you go out and look for some articles today, you'll find a lot of people discussing whether or not viruses are dead or alive. And this is a classic example of what I call a downstream argument. We're going to have millions and millions of pages written on a fight that they're fighting over, something that hasn't even been proven to exist yet, if you can imagine right. that. Well, of course I can. I mean, they're trying to talk about COVID, like uh, all the whether COVID virus was a natural virus or it was created by this country or that country in a lab, man. And it's like, right. wait, have you confirmed right. that viruses exist and cause disease in the first place? No. Right. <laughs> no, of course they have. Right. You know. Right. And so, you, you know, let alone the argument that, you know, wait a minute. So you're telling me that this thing that has no brain, has no respiratory system or circulatory system. It, it doesn't eat anything. Uh, so it has no will, right? It has no motive, this uh, alleged virus. And yet it somehow to wants kill you. to attack you and kill you. But once in it, and it's got this fancy thing where it, it can trick your cell and it knows how to connect to the right receptor cell. Like, why would, that doesn't make any sense. It, none of it makes a lick of sense. If you, if you know enough about it, Un unfortunately I've, or fortunately I've learned enough about it to go, oh my gosh. This is insanity. All right, where were we? Google searches. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of already mentioned all this earlier, so I'll skip past that. Uh, this is, to me, maybe the most important thing to mention here for anybody who is going to go do their own research. And, you know, the way I say this is that virology unmistakably and unabashedly deliberately intends to deceive us with the use of one single word that completely throws everybody off the hunt. And that word is isolate or isolation. So we all know what the word isolate or isolation means. Nobody needs that word defined for them. But in the world of virology, it can mean several different things. And the usage most commonly ascribed to their papers, when they say they isolate something, they either mean, one, the swab or tool that they use to extract the the fluid or tissue sample from the patient has been isolated from the patient. I, I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's isolation in some of these virology papers. And then the Wait, other use of the word... Headphone. <laughs> the other use of the word is All right. that they... I, the other use is they isolate the fluid or tissue from the swab or tool that they use to extract it, if you can believe that. I, I, you can't make this stuff up. The, that's isolation from the swab. The fluid right. being isolated from the tool. Our you, you, go, you go read these papers and they'll just boldly and proudly state that they isolated the virus and now they're on to the next step. Right. 
Now, people think, surely it doesn't say such nonsense. Surely it I doesn't. But go and check. <laughs> don't well, yeah, don't yeah. just say, surely it doesn't. Go and check. After you read it, right, you're just, you're, you'll be blown away that they don't, if you, you can go, if you know how to read a scientific paper in, in virology, you can go look at their methods section, right, which is where they get into the details, and you'll see that they never isolated any virus. Right. Yeah. You can, you could say anything, and that's usually what the abstract says up there. And, you know, Dr. Coppin points out that, you know, a lot of doctors these days don't have any time at all for reading scientific papers. You know, they've got a, whatever, half hour lunch break. And they go and, you know, skim through the latest articles and, you know, headline, you know, scientists in China isolated the coronavirus. And it's on to the next one, right? That he, as far as he's concerned, it's done and he's convinced. It's not until you get into some of these weeds that you uh, see the deception going on. And this word isolation is the deception. And for them not to just come right out and admit that it's deceptive to use that word is astonishing. Tells me a lot of things I need to know. So everybody keep that in mind that even though the paper says they isolated it, they didn't do what you think they did. End of the story. Uh, so here's another piece. Uh, and this is what Dr. Kaufman was originally pointing his finger at, right. rightly so, in the early days in 2020. He was saying he found that, the, uh, that there are these things called exosomes, and that just means outside the body or outside the cell, right? Exo and soma. And... Mm -hmm. Right. These exosomes are morphologically characteristic, characterized the exact same way as a virus. They, so much so that nobody can tell the difference between an exosome or a virus. Now, how's that for a head scratcher? They're, they're identical. For example, if you looked up uh, pictures of exosomes on Google and pictures of viruses on Google, you'd, you'd see basically the same photo? That That's right. They're all, yeah, but they, they all come in little different shapes and sizes and squigglies and this and that. Yeah, everything's a... Everything's a, you know, circular-ish body with uh, squiggles on the outside, right? E right. E everything <laughs> down to that level is circular stuff with squiggles, yeah? Right. And keep in mind that when you pr press something down inside slides, it, it, you smash it into a circle if it has any spherical form whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Come out sure. Looking sure. like a circle. Flattened. Yeah. So, right? Another, another word they use is extracellular or outside the cell vesicles. Extracellular vesicles also. Basically, same little circular, squiggly, googly things that nobody could tell the difference between those and viruses. So well, there's all these things there that can't tell the difference, but we're supposed to believe sometimes they're viruses and sometimes they're exosomes, right? With no, no way to prove it. So that's pretty head scratching. Now, a lot of people like to talk about bac bacteriophages as a, an example that viruses exist. And, this is, and also giant viruses. So they'll point to these and say, wait a minute, you can't say viruses don't exist because of bacteriophages and giant viruses. Oh. No, it, it's, it's, a, it's almost like a reverse naming thing going on. It's, it, I always say it's like calling horses and zebras uh, unicorns without horns. Right? They haven't, nobody's proven that the unicorn exists yet, and, but they can say, well, look, this, this, this uh, zebra looks pretty close and so does this horse. You follow that logic there, Matt? Yeah, I mean, you could definitely imagine that the, given the, the fact of the horse and the zebra that, I mean, all it would take is a, a simple horn. So it's not very far off, is it? Right. So that, those are those are just unicorns without them. And that's kind of what they're doing. Well, that's exactly what they're doing with this giant virus and bacteriophage story. But people love to scream back at us when 
we, we claim that no one's proven viruses exist. And they use these two examples. And that's, it's not worth going into what these are in this uh, talk here today. But suffice it to say that it's amazing that they can find these giant viruses and bacteriophages without the use of these you know, sequencing and viral culturing methods. But they, they can never find the real the viruses that count, right? HIV and SARS-CoV-2 and measles and chickenpox and all the other millions of viruses they say exist. Can't seem to find them, but they can find these two things. So don't let that dissuade you. They are not the same thing, uh, largely because no one's proven that they exist. So that's my next section here. So yeah, so the big the big guys, and I, I want to talk mainly about Dr. Stefan Lager. He's the main guy. He was a virologist, as I mentioned. And one of the most interesting things, I mean, he's he's the one who really figured this out and showed everybody. So he deserves all the credit. But in 2015, he put out a, a measles challenge. He's from Germany. And he challenged anybody to bring in a paper that showed, that proved, they found that they proved the existence of measles virus. And mm -hmm. this is, I really want to, this is really important because some guy uh, eventually took him to court to collect his 100,000 euros. And the guy won in court, the challenger. He brought in five or six papers, even though the challengers bring in one paper. And mm -hmm. that court case was not, there was no experts. There was no testimony. It was literally the, uh, up to the judge's decision. He went back in his chambers and read through five or six papers. And yeah, this is this looks like proof to me. And so he found in favor surprise. of the challenger. A big surprise. And of course, Dr. Laka. Maybe you uh, should have listened to this podcast. <laughs> right. So the media covered that like nobody's business. You can find it in all sorts of media outlets that, that Blanco lost the case. This virus denier maniac, Dr. Blanco. So anybody who goes and looks up his name, this is what they're going to find, that he lost this case and he was proven wrong. But the truth is, is that he appealed the case and it was in a higher court. And he got to, of course, question the witness, question the papers and bring in his own experts. And the judge had to reluctantly concur that no one indeed had proven that the measles virus existed. And so, boom, Blanca not, not only didn't have to pay the guy, the guy had to pay his court expenses for putting him through uh, the trouble. And, you know, nice. so people ask, well, why did he, why did Blanca choose measles of all the, you know, least deadly, least scary viruses out? He chose the measles because of the 1954 Enders paper. Mm -hmm. And right. because, because every single proof of a virus since then, always references the Enders paper when they do their viral culturing. So that's why he chose it. Right, right. We said it. If this is suspect, that makes everything else suspect. So he's the man. He does a lot of interesting stuff out there still today. Kind of hard to find sometimes, but always worth uh, a deep dive if you're interested. Uh, the other guy I mentioned was Dr. Andrew Kaufman. He appeared on David Icke, and he's got his own uh, channel now. So he's he's kept, kept the dream alive. He's definitely the most articulate of the group. Uh, he's very clear and concise in what he says. And worth a listen if you want to dive deeper into uh, this uh, virus myth. Uh, Dr. Tom Cowan is another one, good friends with Dr. Kaufman. He, uh, he's the one who's keeping the topic alive. He regularly talks about it on his weekly podcasts. And he's just, you know, he doesn't want to let it go. Now, there's, you know, a lot of people resisting it in the alternative health space. And uh, he keeps pushing it. He keeps challenging people. And uh, he's always always worth a listen. And lastly, there's a, a Dr. Sam and Mark Bailey. Sam is the pretty face on all the videos. She was actually a media personality in New Zealand prior to for the for, you know for the regular establishment medical system. So she had some some uh, experience in making videos and doing uh, content for the public. So 
hers are by far the most friendly, uh, I'll call normie friendly videos. She, and she'll do them, you know, she'll do it on the measles and chicken pox and polio, tobacco mosaic, right? She'll just do a 15, 20 minute piece on the absurdities of all of these. So those are really good people newly introduced to the information. And then real quick, uh, Dr. Lee Merritt is a, is a woman who was, uh, she was a military physician. I forget, she was in osteo, I forget exactly what she did, but she's uh, she's come around to, after learning all the stuff that I learned, she's come around to the, the position that it looks pretty tenuous that viruses exist. And another guy, Dr. Michael Yaden, he worked for uh, Pfizer, I think, he's a pharmacologist. And I've heard him at least say that he no longer believes that respiratory viruses exist. I, I don't know why he thinks other ones do, but I've heard him mention that. So got a lot of doctors, uh, and this is what people seem to need to feel like there might be some uh, legitimacy to this argument. So that's why I mention all those names. Uh, let's see here. Yeah. Closing out. So wanted to add a few resources here uh, quickly. There's a documentary out there called The Viral Delusion. You really should go pay for it. I think it's 7 or $8. There's some free copies flying around. But it, it's a real good summary of what I talk about today. It was a real nice job. And you see all the the people, most of the people I mentioned in this uh, podcast in it. Uh, there's also Dr. Stefan Lanka's paper from June 2020, which is what flipped the switch for me, called The Misconception Called Virus. It's a very good paper. It explains you know, more or less what I explained here today. Uh, there's another paper more recent from, I think, September of 2022 from Dr. Mark Bailey. That's Sam Bailey's husband. And it's called Farewell to Vi Virology. I think that's over 60 pages. It's very complex, uh, very technical for anybody who wants to get down to the very finest details, that's the paper. Uh, and then there's a guy named Mike Stone. He's got a website called Virology. So it's it's B-I-R-O-L-I-E-G-Y.com. And he's got a tremendous uh, assortment of resources, articles, explanations there on the uh, on the sham known as virology viruses. So those are the places to go. Uh, all of those, uh, Dr. Dr. Kaufman, Cowan, and Bailey are all on Odyssey, some of the uh, older Dr. Cowan videos are on bitchute.com, and Odyssey is O-D-Y-S-E-E, -E, by the way, for those of you who haven't seen that, that's a, those are video platforms like uh, YouTube. All of this information has largely been censored on YouTube for some strange reason. So you've got to find it elsewhere. And where was I last? Uh, so a good question I get a lot is why there's hesitation from other prominent alternative health personalities that are against this this, uh, the mainstream virus narrative. That's a good question. I, you know, I, I can't speak for anybody else. Um, it, it, it does appear that they are certainly not incapable of looking at it, but it seems to me they're unwilling to look into this information and evaluate what's been pointed out. I don't have really right. any other explanation. You know, I think there's part of it too, is they want to maintain some popularity. I mean, I think they have a financial reason to stick with where they're at. No reason to, you know, rustle up their followers and believers. And they don't see any real gain in jumping on board the viruses don't exist uh, story. I don't know. Can you think of any other reasons, Matt? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'll get to it in combination of why just generally people don't um believe, or why people do believe in viruses right after this. Could, yeah, it could be. Could be a variety of reasons, but you know, it is frustrating for me. I know, I know, a lot of these voices have heard about it, uh, popular voices, especially in you know, we'll call it the anti-vax narrative, who are unwilling to 
talk about this, and, you know, publicly. So that, that that should maybe be, you know, bring some, bring up some questions alone to say, why don't they get on a podcast with these guys and, and you know, debate it, discuss it? I don't know. They apparently don't want to. They've certainly been asked to many times. So that is... Uh, and then finally, I guess I'll close with this is, you know, what does make a six? We've already run over an hour by about seven or eight minutes. So obviously it, it's going to take time. And as I tell Matt often, you know, I wish I could just say, oh, it's not viruses. It's actually schmiruses. That's that's it. That's the answer. Smaller thing we haven't observed yet. <laughs> right. It's the tinier little thing. That's the answer. Unfortunately, it's really not even close to being that simple. And each different disease has some different nuances, some different explanations, and uh, it requires a little bit more background information before we get into it, but I promise we will talk about every popular virus out there. I don't know if I'll ever do Zika, but we'll certainly do all the big scary ones uh, that are out there. And, uh, you know, maybe I can get two or three of them in, in a podcast and, you know, maybe a couple of them are going to take a full podcast just to talk about it because there are a tremendous amount of nuance. So there is, believe it or not, there is another explanation for what we think what diseases we think are caused by viruses. Very Say it ain't so, Brett. It couldn't be true. I know it is scary as it sounds. That's the case. So we're going to stick around, keep coming back to our podcast, of course, and you'll see them in due time. I'll probably do, you know, maybe one a month coming up here in a few months. And we'll just pick a, we'll pick a week and we'll do, you know, pick a virus. We'll do HIV or, you know, COVID. Everybody wants to hear my COVID version. So that'll be a, a nice controversial one for everybody, but we'll do them all. That much I can guarantee. You got anything else, Matt? Well, I want to at least tease that real life events are essentially, and your reaction to them are the cause of the symptoms you experience. Right. Fair to put that out there? Put it out there. I'll say yes. I'll agree to that. Right. And I'll use that as a segue into mentioning take your power back. You reckon? That's a perfect okay. segue. It's a perfect so segue. Yeah. We'll explain in future podcasts. Uh, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Did you want to mention something? No, I was just going to say it's part part and parcel of understanding diseases is you've got to take your power back. Right. You know, the, the victimhood angle is, uh, is not serving any of us. And that's part of the explanation. But go ahead. Right. So this is my perspective right now. The reason people believe in viruses is it, you know, invisible, unproven viruses. The reason people so readily believe in this is because it's, you, you can just dismiss the real cause, all right? You, you can, instead of saying, instead of accepting what seems to be fact to me, that real life events, real life conflicts, your emotions, your, your thoughts, you know, what's going on in your life and how you react to things cause your symptoms, right? And once you become, you know, open to that and become conscious of it and you start to observe the relationship between your experience in life and the symptoms that you experience, you're like, oh yeah, I had that that conflict right before that. You notice it, right? And it's not right. difficult to notice, right? It's literally not difficult. You can perceive it and watch it in real time and you're like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm literally getting sick right according to how that person explained that this emotional conflict can cause sickness. Like, I can see it happening in real time. I would say, why don't, you know, why can't people go into that 
and feeling that and why do they have to go to some make-believe invisible virus that they that they personally themselves have certainly never seen and just rely on some authority out there to say that it, it exists you know and it's because of this you know this this disempowerment well when, when we get disempowered you know you know we, we get all these things like victimhood and we're like it's 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 not it's not me I, i'm not causing this thing it's something out there you know I, I it couldn't possibly be my reaction to my real life conflicts it's that's not what it is there, there's just no way I'm not looking at that. I'm not considering that. It's something out there. It's a microscopic thing that I've never seen before and I've never had proven to me that I just believe in. That's the cause, right? And you can see how that's such a disempowered right. position. And in and, fairness, right, in fairness to the vast majority of people, this is what we've been brainwashed, indoctrinated, and trained into believing. There's somebody out mm -hmm. there that wants us to be disempowered, that wants right. us to be fearful. Right. So, right. Which is the, the top level conspiracy in a way, right? To disempower us. That's right. That is the goal. If we take mm -hmm. back our power, they lose theirs. Right. Because they aren't they don't have any power, they're just taking ours away from us. <laughs> right. So in Take Your Power Back, what we help you do is regain your 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 ability to face reality, right? to look at your emotional conflicts and go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I feel that now, I see it. And also to re reclaim your intellectual sovereignty such that you're no longer just involved in this naive authoritative scientism, as I'm calling it these days, where it's just, uh, apparently the scientists said something and they're credible and they wear lab coats and talk, they talk like this and what we're observing in the scientific community at the moment. You know, just stop doing you know, knowledge acquisition by that way and do it self-experientially, right? So in Take Your Power Back, we we introduce you to that way of being and it's a much more empowered way to live. What do you reckon, Brad? I reckon that's spot on. And there's a, you know, there's a shift that has to take place. We just don't, nobody comes to this all at once. So that that's the reason right. for the course, you know, is it takes time to shift yourself from this fear-based, powerlessness-based, victim-based consciousness into a true, truly empowered consciousness. Take some time. Mm -hmm. So but we understand, we understand that everybody believes in viruses and we understand that that's what we've been taught for hundreds of years, 150 years or whatever. So it, you don't wash it all away at once. And, and, and my, you know, this podcast today won't wash it all away at once, but in time, as, as people begin to contemplate this a little bit, it starts to become more and more apparent. And that's the goal of the course. Right. So and you can get it at themindblindzone.com? That's where it's at. Awesome. Uh, anything else, Matt? That's the whole thing. Viruses. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Well, there are probably a few uh, people working at gas stations and grocery stores and retail shops that, uh, <laughs> that, I, that I turned on to this. I appreciate you coming along and listening along with people that I uh, point to this online. Appreciate everybody listening. And I, and I do hope that we, uh, people go and look at those resources. I'll try to get those into the description here so that we have them for some of the main players that I talked about. And uh, you'll be able to quickly go over and verify uh, for yourself what I've been talking about here tonight. So thanks, Matt, for uh, your inquisitive remarks and questions and comments. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you on the next podcast, number 15. Right on. Yeah, Matt.
Well, thanks, Brad. Thanks, everyone. All right. See you in the next one. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye.